Oh. <laughs> We're gonna be in the same Which? same area. <laughs> Hey, and welcome to the Healthier Money Podcast. My name is Kyle Payak, and I'm here today with Tiffany, and we are going to be talking about something that is interesting, not only to business owners, but for a lot of people, because it they don't, they don't know about, how many people know about this? It's a pretty, it's been around since the 80s, but still a lot of people don't know about oh, the research and development tax credit. Yeah, so what you just mentioned is, is specifically the research and development tax credit. So what the research and development tax credit is, is something that's been around since the 80s that you said, and it is a, a benefit that companies and businesses should be taken advantage of, but, Absolutely. or more than likely not. Absolutely. So um, do you want to get into some of the specifics on this? The note that I took from the conference server. So we, we just got out of a meeting, right? So I, yeah. I wanted to see sort of what it is that you do actually in real time. Yeah. And we uh, I was able to set up a meeting with another company, another business owner who is whose actions do qualify for these R&D tax credits. And let's, uh, so that was really interesting to see. I think that it was cool to see you kind of in your element doing your thing awesome. and, and getting after it. Uh, let's start with, you know, who's who's Tiffany? Who is Tiffany Biscott? So it's a very loaded question, but I can say uh, I'm a CPA. And what I do is help business owners identify opportunities within the organization to save taxes so they can use those funds to infuse their business and continue doing what they do. So I focus primarily on research and development tax credits, which is a huge tax incentive program. I help businesses identify the activities in their organization that would qualify for that tax credit. And then I build out the studies from there. That's interesting. So what are these studies that entail? So I heard you talk a lot about kind of the study, and it seems that that's like the really extensive part of the work. Once you, a company says, okay, yeah, I want to identify the activities. Let's come in and do the study. What is, what is the study and what does it mean? Yeah, so I think I think the initial part is just making sure that the organization is doing qualified activities. Let's go back to that. Yeah. Good. I like that you started there. So there's a couple concepts that people need to first the awareness factor. So yeah. how, how do you bring about a level of awareness that even teaches people or shows people what it is that you do? So I talk a lot, and I <laughs> I bring it uh, to two realms. I'll, I'll, I deal a lot with other CPAs who work in general tax practice to help them help their clients a little bit further by specializing in an area that they may or may not be too aware of. So I help the education process really starts there to help them continuously try to identify clients within their base that could qualify for the credits. Then as I deal with directly with business owners, it's it's getting them to understand at a root level what the credit was intended to do and why the activities in the organization may or may not qualify. So the intention of the credit is really to to incentivize U.S.-based businesses to employ U.S. labor and to continue innovation within the country. So it really is not an industry-specific type of credit. What it is is it is something that is based on activity. So it's an activities-based credit. So going in and kind of boiling down, okay, what are you developing? What kind of processes are you improving on? What kind of processes are you creating? And then how is that work going to play into what the research and development tax credit is there to incentivize? Got it. So yeah, it seemed that you said a lot of your a lot of what you do really is about the building awareness around what the R&D tax credit is, educating the business owner or the business on what what needs to happen and what the qualifying activities are. And then there were some specific qualifying activities that uh, you went into. So um, the business component of that. So what is like as far as that, that means business structure or? 
Yeah, so the way the way I, the IRS created a platform for businesses to identify whether or not they're doing activities that qualify, what they did is create a four-part test. So generally what will happen is that is a part of the initial conversations that I have. So the first part of the test is basically it just has to be, there has to be a business component. So are you developing or improving on a new process, a product? Uh, are you doing efforts that are intended to be for sale or use by customers? Is it an effort that is increasing the functionality or creating additional functionality on something that already exists? Are you increasing the durability or the, the quality of an item if you're doing improvements? And if you're developing something new, I think an important part to note for that is it has to be new to you as a business owner. It doesn't have to be new to the world. It doesn't have to be new to the industry. Somebody across the street may be doing something similar but for you as a business, if you're trying to integrate and create something internally, that process of development is something that counts towards the R&D, uh, the R&D qualifications as far as the activities. Cool. So you, that's, so as long as basically someone is developing something new, what, and that doesn't have to be, like you said, not new to the industry. Because I think maybe people will be like, oh, well, this is kind of around. Yeah. But it, it is, if it's new to their business and it's a, a process or something that's going to eventually, you know, I guess help their end user, but it, it goes through the process of R&D, right? Yeah, yeah. So it, it doesn't it doesn't have to be new. It could be an improvement on something that already exists. But I think part of the stigma of the R&D tax credit it, from back in the day mm -hmm. is that it had to be something that was completely innovative to the world that oh, nobody had ever seen like before, a, that you like, needed a patent yeah. to do, and that it was just totally, it was totally something that came across that had never been created before. Where now it really... Between the case law and the clarifications that happened in the law over the almost 40 years, mm -hmm. it's become clear that really what it is, is you go into a, a venture in the with the intention of creating a process or a product that's going to be utilized by the masses, not something that you're in your basement creating that nobody's ever going to see, yeah. which is really cool too, but that's sure, not sure. something that would count towards a business component necessarily. And one of the, uh, so uh, in the process of development and creation, um, you're kind of hitting on a lot with the gentleman downstairs. Um, it seems to be really important that payroll or someone, people are getting paid for this. And, and the most, the best way to benefit from the R&D credits is to have domestic people be on the payroll and maybe including yourself. If, if that makes sense towards the credit, right? Yeah. So a lot yeah. of the stuff, maybe, maybe their actions are what would qualify, but the way to maximize it. And you can kind of plant the seed of what they should be doing in the future moving forward. Absolutely. Yeah. I think what's important to remember is that tax credits generally are generated based off of whatever activity and expenses are associated with the activity that you're trying to get the tax credit for. Okay. So in the realm of the research and development tax credit, your tax credit is going to be extracted from expenditures, qualified research expenditures. So what you're trying to do is make sure that you're making decisions to expend your funds in a way in, the, in your research and development process that maximize the results for your credit. So if you, and, and typically there's three buckets, but the largest bucket for expenditures is going to be the wages. Okay, so, so if, it would might be in your best interest if you're developing an app for your business that's going to make streamlined processes for your clients or whatever to hire domestic people on a payroll status versus like a 1099 someone in overseas. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the intent of the credit is to incentivize U.S. labor. So a big portion of that is 
that's why they're incentivizing the wage portion of it okay. in the U.S. the most. So if you were going to make a decision to outsource the, your development efforts overseas, any of that money that you're paying for the overseas development could not be counted towards your tax credit. So if you have an equal opportunity to hire people within the United States that can help you with that development effort and it makes sense to do so, usually that makes a lot more sense in maximizing that credit amount. Okay. Um, and then, so the, like the, there, you, there's basically like a four step thing, like a checklist, right? Sort yeah. of that people can kind of adhere to, to kind of get an idea of their qualifying activities if they are eligible for potentially looking at this tax credit. And what, what are those? So it's uh, the initial one we had discussed is the business component. So there's four kind of blocks that you want to go through to make sure that your activities qualify. So the first one is business component test. So you want to make sure that you're producing a product or improving on a product or a process that's for sale or use by customers. And then secondary to that, your second panel of tests is there has to be some kind of technical uncertainty at the beginning of the project. So if you go into wanting to develop an app, for example, you're trying to figure out either can I can I do it? Can I do I actually have the capability of making that happen? Or what's the best process to put this flow together? And and what am I going to be able to come up with that would make sense for that app? Or am I am what is the appropriate design for it? So typically, what will happen is most of the time it'll fall back on appropriate design. So you're asking all these questions. You're trying to figure out, you know, am I going to be able to make this happen? But usually at the end of the story, when we're building out the documentation, appropriate design is what will get highlighted the most when you're talking to someone who's developing something. How do I design it? What's the best way to design it? And so that kind of fulfills that technical uncertainty test. Okay. And then attached to the technical uncertainty test, you're going to hit the, the process of experimentation. And that's really the bread and butter of R&D in general. You're going through different iterations or a trial and error process to try multiple alternatives to see if you can answer those uncertainties or address those uncertainties. So if you're developing an actual product, what kind of what kind of materials am I going to use in that development? So you go through different iterations of maybe trying wood to plastics to polyurethane and seeing what kind of material will best fit that design. So okay. that's your, your process of experimentation. And then the fourth test is really, is it grounded in the hard sciences? So I think the intent behind the hard sciences re requirement is that they're trying to segregate from the hard sciences and soft sciences. So instead of doing you know, the social sciences and economics, they want you to focus on engineering, architecture, computer science, biology, stuff that's more uh, tangible hard sciences. Okay. So you kind of touched on on the supply aspect, yeah. like plastics, metals, woods, yeah. or whatever. Um, would, from a, like a technological standpoint, developing an app or a platform or some sort of online resource, uh, what sort of materials would qualify as that, like sort of expenses? Or, yeah, so that's the, right. Even the right way to. No, it's totally right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the, I think the there's really three buckets of expenditures that are considered qualified research expenditures that are kind of bundled together and thrown into the initial part of the calculation, the credit. Okay. So your biggest one is wages, because that's, again, going back to congressional intent, that's really what they're trying to stimulate. Uh, the second one is your contract labor. So they allow you to take 65% of your contract labor that's for qualified research expenditures into that bucket. And then the third one, as you touched on, is the supplies. So typically the supplies are going to be your hard materials. And an important thing to note about the supplies is it has to be a tangible, non-depreciable material. So you're not you're not putting in product 
products or items that are going to be depreciated elsewhere. And in the in the development sphere, because technology has changed really the way that we've seen everything over the sure. past yeah. 40 years, uh, part of what is looked at in that realm too is the hosting fees. If you're if you're if you've developed software, you need a place to test that software. Right. So your platform, instead of being something tangible like a desk or a factory, your factory is really maybe in the cloud. Server space exactly. or whatever. Yeah. Okay. So a portion of that that's used for R&D can also be considered for a part of the research expenditures. So say for people listening, if anyone's listening. <laughs> so Everybody's say, so, listening. So say for people listening, if they're a business owner and they're possibly engaging in some R&D um, activities, what would be your number one thing to say, you know, if you're expensing it this way or you're paying out of state labor or what, what would you say would be the most beneficial change they could implement to be able to maximize this sort of a credit? So I, I think, I mean, there's no one size fits all. And mm -hmm. I think really the, the best benefit of going into a discussion about your organization specifically with the R&D credit is that other items might get identified that could be focused on in order to really maximize the benefit, not only of these tax credits, but of other decisions that you might want to make in the short and long term. So if you look at the R&D credit specifically and you're thinking about those three buckets, the biggest impact you're going to have is wages. So if you're making decisions on whether to hire an independent contractor or to bring somebody on as an employee, obviously you have to look at the full scope of what it means to, to legally appropriate that designation for each of them. But if you have the opportunity to bring in more people and pay more developers or pay more engineers that labor, that wage portion of your calculated credit will get higher, which means your credit will get higher. So it's, it's more of looking at all the pieces, trying to figure out the best way to put them together. And then with your ultimate goal in mind, which would be to successfully continuously developing your product or processes and getting the best that you can out of the credit that's laying here on the table for you to use. Cool. So I guess I have two final questions on yeah. this topic. So uh, say your thing's developed, right? But there's constant evol evolution of iterations or process improvements, or you ha if you have the staff that's on just the process improvements of your platform that you have developed already, is there any sort of continuing credits that you can get out of this? So the way I see it and the way it generally happens within anybody who's an innovator or trying to stay ahead of the time, business this, these days, it's really hard to stay successful unless you're continuously trying to be cutting edge in some area or unless you're continuously updating your technology platforms or abilities internally. Mm -hmm. So what will end up happening usually as somebody develops a product or a process, I mean, if you take software, for example, usually they put out version one and by that night they're working on version two. Yeah, so yeah. it's not something that is it's ever like, stops. Yeah. So what will end up happening is you'll... There's since, always a new iPhone in development. Yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so that's that's exactly right. And that's, right. What, that's what ends up happening. So you have your initial project and Iris likes project basis. So you, you're looking at that first project. As soon as you sell that first iPhone and it's on the market, you're moving on to the next iPhone and then the clock starts again. So that well, whole development I think process. Even what I was more so talking about is like, say you, you do have a an online platform, something you've developed, but you're you're constantly refining it, making it better. Yeah. And it's just adding to what you already have, maybe not developing a new project. Yeah. Is there a way to continually get credits? Like I think you yeah. said something about if someone's time is 80% or more. Yeah, yeah. So what ends up happening is... And I think the payroll chunk is going to be the biggest, right? Like yeah. you said. So you're going to have people on this physically to 
putting in time and energy and effort into building this stuff, you might not always need to bring in new materials, but you're always going to have people working on it. Yeah. Yeah. So what I like to kind of go back to is the the definition of the business component part, which Mm -hmm. is it can be new or improved. So when you're talking about the, but the improvement part, it's also critical to note that it has to be like a functional improvement, something that's changing the quality or the durability. It has to be something that's, you know, a tangible functional update. So if you're doing bug fixes on software, that wouldn't count. Okay. But if you're adding in new functionality and you're continuously trying to upgrade the way the, uni- the user interface looks or the behind the scenes action of how quickly data is getting segregated or you're adding new components or new modules, all of that work still is considered research and development. It would just probably be different projects. So you break it. it down. Oh, so you could still, I guess, break it down to project based, even yeah. though if it's one particular platform. Yep. Cool. Yep. All right. Absolutely. And then uh, I'm sure if you'd want to, this is the juicy bits, right? What's a typical expected return, you know, on, on an R&D credit? What, what could people expect to either save or get back? Yeah, so it's a, the, the, the calculation process of the R&D credit is part of the reason why it's a, a specialty field in the sense of gathering the, the data and going through the, the two different calculation options of what the credit would be in the baseline calculation. But what ends up happening usually, and I'm in Arizona, so Arizona to me is great because it is one of the best states in the nation. But an important thing to note, it it is a federal credit, but most states in the nation have adopted it in some way. And depending on where you're developing, you want to look at the laws in that state and Sometimes they'll expire and then come back. Sure. Um, so you have two levels of benefit most of the time. You'll have your federal benefit and then you have the state benefit. So in, in Arizona, generally, we'll, we'll estimate around eight percent for your federal for your federal benefit, and then Arizona around twelve percent. So you're thinking about about twenty percent of your qualified research expenditures are going to come back in the form of a credit. And a credit is different than a deduction in the sure. sense it's a dollar for dollar tax reduction. And in Arizona, you actually have the option of doing a refundable credit. So for those businesses that qualify, that's actually cash back, literally cash back. So cash money. Well, that's exciting. Thank you so much for your time. So I do actually wanted to take your time for a second and get some bonus info. Okay. <laughs> um, because I thought that was really interesting. The uh, the qualified opportunities okay. and, and the way to expense real estate so the 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 little real estate conversation you had i think that was pretty interesting i've never heard that and i I mean i didn't i have no idea no it's okay yeah yeah so so another part of the the tax so bonus 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 footage isn't that like the b-side yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) um so (laughs) another good strategy tax strategy and something to look at for people that are buying especially commercial real estate is uh, the cost segregation studies. And the reason why those are so great is typically what will happen is if you don't go through the process of doing a cost segregation study and you buy a piece of property, there'll be very limited segregation in the segments of that purchase and the depreciation is not going to be very favorable. So the law allows you to segregate the different components of a structure and depreciate according to that component. So what will end up happening with the cost seg studies or cost segregation studies is you have engineers that go out and build out a, a study for you that, that actually identify the different areas and different parts within that building that you can depreciate at a different timetable. Okay. So, so, and to be specific, so what she's talking about is anyone in, in commercial or residential real estate where you're holding a, 
property for a while, not like a flip and fix or something like that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. Would, it would, it would, it would just mostly be a strategy for anybody buying commercial real estate or rental rental properties and uh, wanting to kind of segregate out those components. Because a, a building will depreciate much slower than yes. a, yeah, well, like you said, electric. Sometimes components. a lifetime. Yeah, yeah, yeah or exactly, or more, right? I mean, yeah, go to Rome. Yeah. Oh, no. Well, hello. And lighting just kicked on. Anyways, yeah. So, um, yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. And maybe a little bonus like, cool. info. So, how do people learn more? What do they need to do? Um, so, just really feel free to reach reach out to me at any point. Uh, so, I'll put her info in the show notes and on the website. Yeah. And, um, you know, a big portion of this is just really wanting to get the awareness out on the opportunities. So, even if you're not at a place to take advantage of them now, for me, it's really important to plant those seeds because as you make decisions as a business owner, you want to make sure that you have all your tools around you and sure, then you yeah. can figure out when to use them. It's like, you know, if the more you know, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and if you didn't know, you didn't know and you couldn't take <laughs> advantage of it, but hopefully we can inform the masses. Yes. Well, Tiffany, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a Healthier Money production. I've been Kyle Payton. See you on the next one. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.